Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This panel discussion of faith and citizenship in a global context was part of a two-day conference on May 3rd and 4th at Yale Divinity School. Activists, academicians, and former diplomats speak about the intersection of faith and politics. An introduction is given by Harold Attridge, Dean of the Divinity School. The panel is moderated by Harold Coe, Dean of the Law School. Welcome to the second session of a conference on faith and citizenship at Yale Divinity School. I'm Harry Attridge, Dean of the School. We continue our conversation on faith and politics with a panel considering the global dimensions of the conversation. And our panelists include Jennifer Butler, Executive Director of Faith in Public Life, Heidi Hadsell, President of Hartford Seminary, James Joseph, U.S. Ambassador to South Africa in 1996-99, and Professor of the Practice of Public Policy at the Sanford Institute of Public Policy at Duke University. Paul Lakeland, Director of the Catholic Studies Program and Professor of Religious Studies, and the Aloysius P. Kelly, S.J., Professor of Catholic Studies at Fairfield University. James Laney, U.S. Ambassador to South Korea from 1993 to 97 and Professor Emeritus at Emory University. And Emily Towns, Andrew W. Mellon, Professor of African American Religion and Theology here at Yale Divinity School. A moderator for this conversation is the Dean of Yale Law School, Harold Coe. From 1998 to 2001, Dean Coe served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Dean Coe has written more than 80 articles and authored or co-authored eight books. He has honors too numerous to mention. Most significant for me is the privilege to count this gifted colleague, scholar, and advocate as a friend, both personally and as a friend of the school. Join me in welcoming the panel and its moderator, Dean Harold Coe. Welcome to this uh, important session. Uh, the discussion this couple of days is about faith and citizenship, and today we want to talk about the global perspective. Uh, yesterday at his uh, introductory lecture, a very thoughtful uh, and penetrating lecture, E.J. Dion ended by saying, we're destined to visit over and over the relationship between religion and our aspirations to pluralism, freedom, justice, and democracy. Only by doing so will we be able to respect the serious moral commitments of believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, the challenge for this panel is to examine how this idea uh, about the relationship between faith and public life uh, connects in the global perspective to the problems in an age of globalization. Uh, we have six distinguished panelists. Rather than uh, introduce them now with time-consuming introductions, we're going to go directly to the panel. But I do at the outset have to disclose two personal relationships uh, which you'll find amusing. The first is with E.J. E. Dion himself. He doesn't realize this. But 34 years ago at uh, Harvard College, he used to serve, uh, he was a late night uh, fat, short order cook at Tommy's lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is true. And uh, I remember going over there. <laughs> I, I remember going over there and ordering a cheesesteak sub from him with my brother. And my brother said, that guy is a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, that guy? And he said, no, no. I, I, I pointed to one guy. And he said, no, no, that guy over there who is the really sloppy looking guy. 
Uh, the second person with whom I have an even longer uh, personal affiliation is, is Ambassador James Laney, uh, who uh, not only has had uh, an extraordinarily close role and connection to Yale Divinity School, but also with uh, my home country of Korea. Uh, he was, uh, when he was a Divinity student, uh, a parishioner at the First United Methodist Church and represented here are the Lacambras who were in the church with us. Uh, I remember one day when I was nine years old, uh, we had a lunchtime guest after church, and my father was opening the window, and he said, oh, here's our guest. And someone shouts up from the street in perfect Korean, hey, I'm here. And my father started laughing and said, boy, that guy speaks great Korean. And then a couple of minutes later, this big blonde guy came in, and I said, where's the guy who's speaking Korean? And he said, the answer, of course, was it was Ambassador uh, Jim Laney at the time, divinity student Jim Laney, uh, who had just come back from uh, missionary service in Korea. And uh, as I'll say in a moment, he's had an extraordinary career ever since, uh, uh, promoting uh, diplomatic relations and uh, warm ties between the American and the Korean people. But let me begin uh, with our friend, uh, President Heidi Hadsall. Uh, the question is, uh, one about uh, the idea of citizenship. We have lived uh, until this point uh, with the notion uh, that we have our primary identity as individuals of faith and often individuals who are members of nations. Uh, the core notion again being one of sovereignty. So we, we may be uh, Christians or we may be Americans. This is now coming under challenge because of uh, the age of globalization. Uh, globalization which is challenging the very concept of nationhood and challenging the very concept of national citizenship as the core uh, notion that ought to uh, bind people together. Uh, at the end of the colonial period, new nations abounded. Many nations were uh, created by putting different groups together, and those groups are now facing dramatic ethnic and religious and territorial conflicts, uh, Iraq being the prime example. Uh, President Hadsall, you're an ethicist. You've written about globalization. You've served as the director of the Ecumenical Institute of the World Councils of Churches. Now you're president of the Hartford Seminary. You, as much as anybody in the panel, engages in interfaith dialogue in such countries as Turkey, Syria, Iran, Singapore, Indonesia, as well as in Europe and the U.S. What do you think it means to be a citizen today, and how does globalization affect uh, identities of communities of faith and communities of citizens? Thank you for that small question. <laughs> um, I'll begin and make a few, uh, a few comments and we can all talk about this um, at greater length. I guess the first thing to say is that citizenship is constructed and um, felt differently in different places around the world. So when you say citizenship to a North American um, from the United States, it means something different than it means to a Korean or um, a European or an African. Um, um, for example, the, the European states, many of the European states, as, as uh, you were saying last night, um, France, for example, citizenship has to do today, it didn't always, but has to do, to, to do today with um, something of a hard-fought uh, unity um, and peoplehood. 
Um, and that sense of peoplehood is very different than a North American sense of peoplehood, where we're a, a more pluralistic society, and our pluralism is a problem to us. We don't do it um, anywhere near as well as we should. But we do pluralism, uh, particularly religious pluralism, better than the French because of our notion, a different notion of, of citizenship. Um, and um, for the French, it may be peoplehood. For, for a North American it, uh, from the United States, a United States citizen, it's more like patriotism, uh, loyalty to the state. Um, for an African or uh, many Asians whose countries have been put together by colonial powers, um, citizenship is a, a relative term. Um, in a place like Nigeria, it's often um, defined essentially as a space where different peoples um, compete with each other, the Igbos with the houses, with the uh, Yorubas, and so forth. So citizenship itself is a, is a, a multi-meaning um, uh, word. I, I think that's the first thing to say. I guess the second thing to say in terms of um, globalization is on this big wheel that is turning all of us, this globalization wheel, there's winners and losers. Um, and globalization looks different um, whether you're a winner or a loser. It looks pretty good to the, to the privileged of the world, and it looks especially good to the privileged of the world in privileged countries. Um, it doesn't look so good um, often to um, people who, who don't feel like they're getting um, the goods um, or the um, meaningful participation in a global world. So what globalization does, I think, is it pushes our identities in two directions. One is towards a global identity. It relativizes the sense of nationhood and citizenship. Um, so that, uh, rightfully so, we worry about what happens in Darfur um, and outside of our nation's borders. Um, sometimes um, Americans worry too much about what happens outside our borders and the world wishes we wouldn't. Um, and, um, um, and then the, the other um, way that globalization pushes is towards the construction of smaller identities and identities that aren't um, that of a citizen but are defensive ideas um, and defensive identities of, again, tribe, um, peoplehood, um, uh, and so forth. So that um, the idea of citizen um, is relativized. And you can see that pretty, pretty easily in Europe. Um, the idea of the European Union is not something that arouses uh, today a big amount of um, enthusiasm or um, uh, loyalty. They know they're European citizens, but they're not falling back as their identities push out into Europe. I'm no longer a French citizen, but I'm a European citizen, or in addition to being a French citizen. Um, when that fails to satisfy, they don't fall back on Frenchness as much as they fall back on, I'm from the south of France, or I'm um, uh, an Algerian French, or, or uh, something else. So it pushes this globalization, um, pushes in um, both ways. And I guess maybe the final thing I would say is that um, um, with, with the global world moving in the way it is, our globalization, a lot of our negotiations are local or regional. Um, and um, a lot of the solutions that we have found in local and regional places, the people in the villages in Indonesia that get along just fine, the Christian architect that builds the, builds the mosque, 
um, for, the, for the local Muslims, um, the, the local um, Christians who teach the Muslims how to do pedagogy for their kids so they become better Muslims and so forth. All of those sort of friendly relationships, um, for example, between Muslims and Christians, uh, under the impact of globalization, get attenuated and um, um, they can't, um, they're harder and harder to sustain. Um, those kind of local ways in which um, religions in particular, um, but peoples also um, interact. Thank you, uh, President Hadsel. Uh, our second question shifts from talking about our moral responsibility as global citizens uh, to the role of people of faith uh, in an unjust world. Uh, let me here put in a plug for my own school, the Yale Law School. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as training lawyers to be not just uh, scriveners, but architects, uh, lawyers as leaders. And there are two people here I should single out. The first is my colleague, Professor Harlan Dalton, who is here at the Divinity School and playing a lead role in this conference, but who also uh, has been a leader in our community. Uh, the second is uh, a graduate of our school who will be speaking at today's lunchtime panel, Senator Gary Hart, uh, who is uh, an illustrious uh, uh, leader, thinker, uh, lawyer, diplomat, uh, and scholar, author of many books, as well as novelist, I should say. Um, we are struck by the fact that uh, in his class there were not one but two graduates of Yale Law School and Yale Divinity School, himself and Senator John Danforth, uh, both of whom we think have captured the idea of faith and citizenship uh, in both the domestic and the global dimension. Uh, I'm glad, President Hatzel, you mentioned Darfur because I will return to that for the whole panel in a moment. But going back to the issue of uh, people of faith as leaders, uh, I wanted to ask Ambassador Laney uh, a question about that. Uh, as we said, you've been a Methodist minister, you were president of Emory, you were dean of the School of Theology, uh, former ambassador to South Korea. Uh, do you believe that religious people and religious communities have a special leadership role to play in uh, addressing issues of justice uh, globally? Uh, take, for example, the case of South Korea and North Korea and the tense times that are going on now on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, how do you find that your convictions as a committed Christian, as a minister, contribute to the way in which you uh, approach these questions of justice as you go across international borders? So let me take a very concrete example in the context of North Korea. I'm sure there are many in the six-party talks who would prefer not to address the issue of North Korean refugee rights. Is this something that must be addressed uh, out of the interests of concerns as global citizens, or are we better off just making a deal on nuclear weapons and worrying about humanitarian issues down the road? Well, I'll answer the f that question first and then go to the one I'm prepared for. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I have basically approached the thing that to resolve the confrontation on the Korean Peninsula takes precedence over all other considerations. Not that we uh, deny the urgency and importance of the people that suffer in the human rights and the actual the deprivation, but that um, if we can actually move toward peace, uh, then I think these things may come in the, the uh, capacity to pressure North Korea or to enable them, help them, to address these questions would be greater. Uh, it's just a question of temporal priority. It's not a question of trying to 
deny the urgency of uh, human rights violations. And I appreciate uh, in coming into this uh, situation, I want to acknowledge my uh, um, gratitude to uh, Dean Cole for his uh, generosity of his introduction and to say publicly that uh, my wife Berta and I are almost as proud of him as his mother is. <laughs> um, that's a lot, that's a lot. <laughs> we followed his career with, with profound interest and appreciation. And I want to, to uh, take a moment just to commend Dean Antridge and John Linder for uh, this conference, which I think is uh, addressing such a, an important panoply of questions. Uh, last night, E.J. Dion mentioned in passing, I think, uh, the reluctance that many people have to speak publicly of their faith. Um, it's easy to talk about religion objectively or its role, its influence, but to ask how one's convictions uh, shape the way one goes about doing one's job or how one sees the issues both in terms of domestic or international policy is much more difficult. Um, I remember H. Richard Niebuhr saying that maybe ask the question, why is it that we're more passionate about what we condemn than what we affirm? And to speak of my faith or my convictions in regard to how I ran a university or how I was an ambassador makes me very self-conscious and I do it with uh, reluctance and yet, this, uh, this conference and this question has really forced me in a fresh way to reflect on how my convictions, and I'd say that is distinct from creedal beliefs, have uh, profoundly influenced what I sought and tried to do, both in subtle and more uh, direct ways. What are those? convictions, I, I want to mention them very quickly. As first is my understanding of how we're called to live as people, as human beings. And I don't think this is uniquely Christian at all. I certainly would not use it in an imperial fashion. But we're called to live, I think, in terms of any full life beyond ourselves. That is, somehow to move at least occasionally beyond the prison of our self-preoccupation and to uh, go outside our comfort zone. And for this, I'm indebted to Iris Murdoch and her sovereignty of good as much as I am the Bible when she talks about the capacity for attentiveness. And it, it really is a kind of conversion, a, a uh, catapult outside the self-encapsulation that seems to affect all of our epistemology, our seeing and our vision. I'm not just talking about the eyes of faith, which really tries to interpret everything from a very consciously Christian standpoint, 
but just the capacity to see things more objectively in proportion. The second is my understanding of power, how it's to be used, the constraints upon it. And here, of course, I'm very much, as we, I think, all are influenced by uh, Jesus himself and his use of power, which was there, but is also his uh, renunciation of power. And I think of our own country, I think the extraordinary, almost um, unique example of Washington and his magnificent renunciations, both of his generalship and then of the presidency, as an example of how to avoid the creeping imperialism that power always seeks. As Bernard Balin at Harvard points out, that power seeks dominion. All power seeks dominion. And it must be either constrained or restrained. And how to do that in a way, in terms of policy and all, is just extraordinarily important, as we see today. And thirdly, my conviction about the role of community, which I see as going beyond tolerance, where we simply live together but don't really engage, just let others, laissez-faire. And even beyond enlightenment rationalism, which seeks to uh, find some sort of an accommodation of diversity, but to a genuine in, in engagement with the belief that there is a core of humanity that's, that's a commonality of all. And to move beyond the easy kind of uh, uh, categorizations, demonizations, if we're talking about foreign policy. And at Emory, I, I used all these in ways that I don't need to describe here. Um, engaging the university and, and all with, of course, the, the, the faculty and the students, the teams. Uh, but how does it work out in diplomacy? And I want to speak of that very briefly. The stakes are so high and the pressures are so great. And I think implied in what Dean Cole said, I think Bill Clinton appointed me as a statement. I don't mean a grand statement. Probably no one heard it if it was a statement. <laughs> <laughs> but it was intended to be a departure. <clears throat> All of my predecessors were out of the CIA. That is my immediate predecessors, the three immediate predecessors. They weren't directly out of the CIA, but they had had careers in the CIA and then went on into the White House or the State Department. And they were outstanding people. I, I came to know them and respect them and admire them. But I think <clears throat> Bill Clinton, who was not a friend of mine, but uh, we got acquainted later, felt that as a Methodist minister, a missionary in Korea, university president, someone with friends in Korea, connected to the church, which is terribly important in Korea, and with um, uh, known to the president, sitting president, and this, who would succeed him. Uh, this meant a new approach, shall we call it beyond confrontation, to try to break the, uh, the, the deadlock. And I had dreams when I was asked to serve of resolving this almost half-century impasse. Well, already, you see, I was not going by my first understanding of going beyond myself. I had visions of glory. And um, <clears throat> they were quickly dashed, because immediately upon uh, being appointed, 
we went into a nuclear downward spiral, which is still uh, a problem today. I'll have to tell you this very brief thing. Because I was a minister and because, you know, all that sort of thing, I was considered fatuous, and uh, which probably is partly true. I don't want to acknowledge that's 100 percent true. And uh, in, being, in, in, go, in preparing for my uh, Senate hearing, I went around and saw a number of senators, key of whom, among whom was Jesse Helms. And Jesse Helms was reluctant to see me, and he sat down and with an obvious disdain, says, well, I understand you're a Methodist minister, and they're going to appoint you to be ambassador to South Korea. You know, that's a dangerous spot, don't you? I said, yes. And and he went over the record and sort of thing. Then he said, well, I, I guess you, you, you never served in the military, did you? And I said, yes. He seemed a little surprised. And I said, I was a, in the counterintelligence in Korea. Oh, well, he said, well, I think it's going to be all right. <laughs> Which was a shorthand around a real roadblock. But... Uh, Nevertheless, uh, here this minister and do-gooder confronts the realities of hard power, nuclear ambition in the North, and pressure in D.C. to show much muscle and resolve. And at this point, I think all of us can understand, President Clinton was vulnerable because he had no military record. And it made it difficult for him to resist the, uh, the hard uh, demands of the, of the far right. Uh, he needed to show toughness without, uh, it, because of the in, in growing Republican Congress and so forth. So here we were in an impending uh, collision with threats and counter threats leading to a kind of uh, a crisis, almost a war where we said we were going to impose sanctions and the leader of North Korea said that would mean war and said we will turn Seoul into a sea of fire and Americans with their children started leaving and the Koreans bought up all the ramen and stuff in town. So how do these things, these three things work? First, the clarity of vision, the reality. First of all, against the conventional wisdom of the CIA, Fortunately, General Locke, who was the commanding general, and I agreed on this. North Korea did not, not pose an imminent threat for invasion. They had a degraded military, and their attempts to get nuclear weapons were clearly an attempt to counter their degraded situation and were basically a defensive thing. They simply did not have the economy or the capacity to, to launch a war of aggression. Um, so the issue there was how to maintain this, this clarity against such pressures to do something, including surgical strikes. Uh, this is really a dicey time. We were almost on that. In fact, the United States was about to build up an enormous amount of military in Korea. And General Locke and I sent a sharp cable back saying this simply cannot be done at this time it will be seen as provocative. And that leads me to the second point, namely that power should not be paraded, certainly not provocatively. And there should be power, there should be resolve, but it should also be uh, uh, accompanied by restraint.
And <clears throat> at this point, I have to say, and this, uh, this is very awkward for me to say this, how do you maintain your equipoise in the sense? Uh, my office in the embassy was just a normal size office, but I had a very big bathroom. It was really a big bathroom, it was carpeted. I don't know how it came out to be that way. But occasionally, I would go into that bathroom and lock the door, get out on my knees, and pray. Now, I realized that what I was praying for was a continuation of that clarity of vision, that I would not be confounded by or overwhelmed by anxiety or just see the thing in skewed terms with a squint. Those were very important. I never told anybody in the embassy that. I never told anybody in government that. I'm sorry this is on some sort of tape today. <laughs> I'd rather have deniability. <laughs> but that, you know, I didn't have thing petitions, but I just, I had to have that moment where I could move beyond this almost invasiveness of the self. And it, I think it helped. But the third conviction about the community is that we should engage, that we talk face to face, that even though the North Korean leader was demonized and the, his son was considered crazy, the fact is that uh, we were making these moves toward war almost like a Greek drama inexorably moving, and we were not talking at any level. This is insane. And it was at that point that my role was simply over and over again and shuttled diplomacy back to Washington to try to get somebody to go to North Korea. And we had none, senators none, in Luger who were willing to go and had their bags packed, and for some reason the North Koreans wouldn't accept them. And that's when I went down and talked to, to Jimmy Carter. Uh, outside of government, but it was a, uh, a last resort. We had to have somebody go. And he had a standing invitation, which he used, and I don't need to go into it, but he was able to uh, reach an agreement, which was confirmed later officially in Geneva. Uh, this, of course, was called a sellout. It was appeasement all the things and, uh, you know, the sort of things you would expect from a, from a Clinton administration and from a Methodist minister and a Jimmy Carter and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and yet it worked for eight years. They didn't make any bombs and they didn't do any testing until further isolation by the current administration allowed them to start up their program again, which had been frozen, absolutely frozen under international supervision. And they began making bombs, and then they tested. And now we're back. And interestingly enough, the six-party talks, by the way, were a means by which the United States and North Korea could talk without either one of them losing face. And this is something that I wrote about in Foreign Affairs about four years ago. But the fact is that the Bush administration now wants to talk. They want to make a deal. They're offering concessions. And all the things accepted six years later. Now. There is no direct correlation between faith and policy, faith and political wisdom. 
convictions shape how we see and respond in the world and maybe at times can give us courage if we don't falter. But in Korea, we developed a team which worked at the embassy and the military and the Korean government. And I think in that sense, you know, I, I have to say that uh, without being clearly definable, uh, those convictions really made a difference for me. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Laney, and uh, especially for your reflections on how people of faith can can exercise power and lead. Uh, it reminded me, in fact, of my own meeting with uh, Senator Helms uh, when I was being confirmed. He kept calling me professor, and then one of the State Department people with me pulled me to one side and said, uh, you know, in Washington, the term professor is not a term of respect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, we wanted to shift from the question of how to lead to the question of how to learn, and in particular the question of what we can learn from the experiences of other countries. And on this I wanted to turn to a, the other ambassador on our panel, Ambassador James Joseph, who is uh, a member of the Board of Advisors here at the Divinity School. Uh, ambassador, you served as ambassador to South Africa in a critical time, 1996 to 99. You now teach at Duke where you launched the U.S. Southern Africa Center for Leadership and Public Values. Um, there are some in America who don't think we have much to learn from the experiences of other countries. Uh, I, I would quote you, for example, uh, a dissent by Justice uh, Antonin Scalia at the Supreme Court about uh, the execution of juveniles. We're told that it uh, violates uh, international standards of decency. He says, and quote, it is American conceptions of decency that we care about. Now, I guess the question is, uh, what does your work, uh, particularly in South Africa, tell us about uh, modes of healing and reconciliation that have been tried elsewhere that might prove to be successful in the United States and in other parts of the world? Well, Jim Lading said that uh, President Clinton appointed him ambassador partly because he was a minister. Uh, he may have appointed me despite the fact that I was a minister. <laughs> Because while I had long been involved in all three sectors of American democracy, uh, he had known me as a critic of the notion that democracy is a system of government in which the people have the power. And I had always argued that in recent years, it is a system of government in which the people have the vote, which is not necessarily the same as having the power. Uh, let me say at the outset that if I were developing a lexicon of public values for a world that is integrating and fragmenting at the same time, I would begin with reconciliation. The South African model may not be applicable to every form of conflict, but it demonstrates the potential of the human spirit. It includes the notion of respect for the humanity of the adversary. And it includes Nelson Mandela's assertion that unless we resolve the problems of the world with our brains, we are destined to resolve them with our blood. 
The idea of reconciliation in the South African experience is for some like Desmond Tutu theological. But for many South Africans, it is a way of being that has its genesis in the notion of Ubuntu, which is best expressed by the Kosa proverb, people are people through other people. It means that if I dehumanize another person, I am in the process dehumanized. If I destroy the dignity of another person, my own dignity is also destroyed. Reconciliation then in the South African experience strikes at the very core of what it means to be human. And it involves first and foremost a a kind of existential rebalancing of the self. Now, I say that for a variety of reasons, because there must first be an awareness of the nature and the cause of the alienation before there can be a restoration of what is broken. While many blacks were living in political exile. Many whites in South Africa were living in a form of psychological exile. So bringing back into balance means undoing historical illusions, deceptions, and misteachings. For as Wordsworth has said, to be mistaught is worse than to be untaught. That South Africans chose to emphasize truth and reconciliation because they had to reconcile conflicting images of the past as well as the alienation among groups. The work of reconciliation is not some cozy glossing over what divides. Attempts at reconciliation that seeks only an apology and confession from those who have benefited from a wrongdoing and forgiveness from those who've been victimized by it is empty and incomplete. Desmond Tutu said in the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he reiterated in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness, that once the wrongdoer has confessed and the victim has forgiven, it does not mean that this is the end of the process. Confession, forgiveness, and reparation, he says, are part of a continuum. Unless houses replace the shacks in which most blacks live, unless blacks gain access to clean water, electricity, affordable health care, decent education, good jobs, and a safe environment, Tutu says, we can just as well kiss reconciliation goodbye. Now, these are not the words we tend to hear about the South African experience from those seeking reconciliation elsewhere, and particularly in the United States. The emphasis is on forgiveness from those who have been the victims, while 
very little is said about the third dimension of the continuum. If the first is individual, a kind of existential rebalancing of the self, and the second is communal, then the third is economic. Africans accepted the idea that markets were good for democracy and, good, and democracy good for markets. But what we get out of this experience is the notion that the idea of truth and reconciliation commissions that simply allow people to tell their story may have some therapeutic value. But if they are to contribute to long-term healing and reconciliation, they must seek not only forgiveness, but restitution as well. In other words, reconciliation will be difficult as long as 20% of the global population receives more than 80% of the global income. Reconciliation will be difficult as long as the average income for the richest 20 countries is 37 times the average of the poorest 20. Reconciliation will be difficult as long as 1.2 billion people still live under less than a dollar a day, and 2.8 billion still live on less than $2 a day. And so that takes us to the fourth element of reconciliation that we should learn from the South African experience, and that is political reconciliation. You see, the South Africans would argue that political reconciliation is not dependent on the kind of intimacy that other forms of reconciliation may demand. Rather, statecraft and politics require peaceful coexistence. Forgiveness may come later, after the creation of confidence and the building of trust. Some in South Africa like to tell the story of the Dinka elder, who in reflecting on the Sudanese conflict said, Reconciliation begins by agreeing to sit under the same tree with your enemy, to find a way of addressing the conflict. At, at the lowest level, this may mean simply an agreement to stop killing one another. And although this sense of reconciliation is incomplete, it does interrupt cycles of conflict and later groundwork for something deeper and different. And so it's important to note that before Joseph Nye started to write about soft power and even smart power, there was Nelson Mandela, an elderly gentleman on the southern tip of the continent gave birth to humanity, who was practicing it and, and who was promoting it. And I believe that there's a lot that we can learn from his notion that if we don't resolve the problems of the world through our blood, through our uh, brains, we are destined to resolve it through our blood. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador Joseph. Uh, I next wanted to turn to uh, Professor Paul Lakeland. Uh, the question is not simply one of the role of the church, but what are the role of the congregations in the church in reshaping our notion of global citizenship uh, you are a professor of religious studies. You're the director of the Catholic Studies program at a Jesuit university, Fairfield University. 
and in your latest book, Catholicism at the Crossroads, How the Laity Can Save the Church, uh, you make arguments that Catholicism is a globalizing force that may require some uh, reconsideration of notions of, of citizenship based on uh, nationality or nation-state uh, existence. Uh, what is your view about uh, the role that uh, the laity and people's movement should play in reshaping our concepts of citizenship in a global era? Uh, thank you, yes, uh, uh, and I speak as a, as a professor. I, I must say, going back to your previous comment about Washington, that if professor in Washington is a dirty word, I suspect the professor of theology is an even dirtier word. Um, let me just start by saying that I think that the relationship between faith and citizenship is always an edgy relationship. That, um, that the, 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 the fundamental problem with language about citizenship, wherever we are, but I think particularly in the United States, is that there's always a limit attached to the notion of citizenship, that there is a limit to solidarity that, that impinges upon the notion of citizenship. There's a social conditioning in citizenship which is not well directed towards the kind of universality that faith seems to demand and not directed to the, the universal common good, to borrow a term from Catholic social teaching. That the relationship between citizenship and the universal common good is always a difficult relationship. And people of faith, I think, always exercise a certain hermeneutic of suspicion towards the language of citizenship. In that sense, I suppose I'd say that uh, faith is not only um, sometimes countercultural, but sometimes even counterintuitive in the context of national politics, because it's always pressing people to look beyond self-interest. Um, citizenship sometimes, um, citizenship language uh, can sometimes manage to um, reconcile to some degree the notion of self-interest and the national good. But it's very hard for it to reconcile the notion of self-interest and the universal common good. So that's where the, the, the edginess uh, or the, the hermeneutic of suspicion is, is uh, is located. So I suppose um, getting to the point about the roles of uh, people's movements, of lay people's movements, particularly in, in church context or in context of faith, I mean one of the, the particular problems is, is deciding where as people of faith we can identify effective mechanisms for promoting universal common good for promoting universal solidarity. And although, uh, and the, the nation state uh, has distinct problems in establishing credentials as an engine of the universal common good. I think there are certainly lessons to be learned from nation states like South Africa that we just heard about at the present moment. Um, but the very, the very idea of nation state imposes limits on the imagination that um, the problems that bedevil our world at the present day simply are not, uh, are not well served by. I think um, both people of faith and 
even uh, people of no faith, secular people or people of secular faith, um, can ask the question, what, what is the political equivalent of the religious calculus of eschatological hope? Eschatological hope um, expects, certainly lives with, indefinite delay in the solution of problems and promotes a notion of the subordination of one's self-interest in the long-term cause of finding effective solutions to, to our problems. I think um, uh, the ambassador who spoke of, uh, of attentiveness from Iris Murdoch's text uh, is, is offering us a kind of potentially secular equivalent to the eschatological hope of religious communities that, that would make it possible for some kind of, of cooperation uh, there in the direction of what the other ambassador spoke of as um, the need to, be, to move forward based on a conception of what uh, the human person is, what the human being is. Um, I would suggest then, just to, to, to conclude these brief remarks, that the purpose, the, the, the best advantage that people's groups uh, can offer us is this kind of inquiry into how to proceed towards the universal common good beyond national self-interest, beyond national self-interest or beyond pure self-interest. In, in that kind of process, in that kind of dynamic, um, I think it has to be said that the, the political arm, the political imagination, the state, the nation state, is not the only, um, it's not the only force with which this kind of eschatological hope or this kind of attentiveness has to, has to contend. Um, speaking perhaps now just briefly as a Catholic, I think that sometimes inst at religious institutions present similar kinds of problems to people of faith as uh, nation states do. Um, I think that uh, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is, a, is certainly uh, a world body and certainly a body which has uh, enormous potential and to some degree realizes that potential in trying to address various problems around the world. But the church as an institution, it frequently shoots itself in the foot because it subscribes to the same kinds of uh, necrophilia that all institutions uh, uh, gravitate towards. And what carries us beyond that is the capacity of people, I guess, to, to, think, to think theologically, not religiously, not, not politically, but theologically. And that means, just to, just to wrap it back, that means attending to what the roots of faith suggest to us is the purpose of the human being, the purpose of the human community, and even, and even for secular people, the meaning of human destiny. Thank you, Professor Lakeland. Uh, we wanted to shift the discussion from the role of people's movements to the boundaries between religious and public life uh, let's take two examples. Uh, recently, I attended the funeral of Father uh, Robert Drinan, who was uh, for many years uh, a congressman, a leader of the anti-war movement, uh, as were 
many here at Yale Divinity School as well as Reverend William Sloan Coffin. At a certain point, he was asked to step down from his uh, political role uh, because of his activism on the uh, global citizenship side. Uh, example number two we have as a presidential candidate now, maybe the leading Republican nominee, uh, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is in fact one of the most global uh, religious organizations around. So I want to ask uh, Reverend Jennifer Butler, you're the executive director of Faith in Public Life, where you lead an organization that strengthens the effectiveness, collaboration, and reach of faith movements that share a call to pursue justice and the common good. You worked for nearly a decade as an advocate of human rights at the UN, and you wrote a book about how the Christian right is shaping policy throughout the world. Uh, what can we learn from your experience about the appropriate boundaries for religious activities uh, abroad and at home? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I want to shift a bit into um, how we, in particular, address some of the new emerging conversations around faith and politics, both globally and in the United States, and how we, in particular, as progressive people of faith, organize perhaps differently than we have in the past. Um, I always love to come at things from a very practical angle. Um, I have a background a bit as a community organizer. But um, when I was at the United Nations, um, I came in at a time in the, the mid-90s. I really also appreciated EJ's comments um, about this last night, that you know, the way I was taught at Princeton Seminary and, and sort of in my early days working for the Presbyterian Church at the United Nations was to really sort of keep um, some of my ethical and, and theological um, convictions um, uh, more to myself and let them inform my work, but not articulate them as overtly. I think the way EJ put it last night is that you know sometimes religious liberals actually argue themselves for um, against religious engagement um, in politics altogether. And I think what we see now is a is a, a shift in that both globally and nationally. Um, at the time I was at the United Nations, I mean, religious fundamentalisms had begun, of course, rising around the world, but in the 90s for the global women's movement, which I was very active in, that um, became even more intense as we watched the Taliban take over Afghanistan and started to engage more and more with Iranian women. And I was reminded, um, you know, of, of the story of my own shift in thinking, um, moving from someone who was, um, you know, more letting my convictions feed my... my um, sort of lobbying work at the United Nations to one who began to make the connections more overt in that arena. Um, it, it's, it's amazing, but I, when I was at Union Station getting on the train to come here, I ran into an Iranian colleague who I'd worked with at the United Nations. And my encounter with her was part of my transformation and in in how I conceptualize these things. So I just want to tell this story of, um, it's about it was the late 90s, so this is pre-2001, but um, Taliban had been emerging in, in Afghanistan and um, much was happening in Iran. And a number of us at the UN had decided to form an interfaith coalition to really explore the role of religion in women's lives and in the women's rights movement. And this is sort of unprecedented to do this on this much of an overt level because the global women's movement wasn't very accustomed, I think, to engaging religion that directly. So we had a series of panels around this and um, Iranian and Afghan women came to us um, and asked um, if, if we could share an event. And so we scrapped our plans to do this big event that we had uh, planned for the chapel and the church center for the United Nations. And 
um, turned that over to Iranian and Afghan women. And the chapel for the UN, so many of you have probably been to the Church Center for the United Nations, it's this big granite marble sort of communion table that cannot be moved. It weighs, you know, 500 pounds, I don't know. Um, so we, we put the women at that communion table, um, which I'm sure some people would have shuddered to, to conceptualize turning this communion table into a panel. But to me, it became a symbol um, for how we can engage religion and public life more effectively. The women sat around that panel and the room was packed. I mean, there were 150 people in there. I've never seen a UN uh, panel that packed. There were media from all over the world. And um, as the panel began, midway through, there was a commotion at the door of the chapel. The Iranian delegation walked in with its security detail, clearly to intimidate the panelists. And uh, this very woman who I ran into in Union Station as I was coming up here and hadn't seen in, in seven or eight years, um, stopped the panel and said, um, you know, we need to remember that uh, these women are very brave and they're speaking at risk of their own lives in coming out and speaking of the things they're speaking of. Let's give them a round of applause to show our support. So just as the security detail is walking in the door, everybody rises to their feet and gives them a, a round of applause, covering up the Iranian delegation and the security detail so that the panels couldn't even see that they were in the room. And it, it gave the women the courage to go further. So here we have in an arena that usually does not discuss religion that overtly, people of faith, people that may, may not have a faith, may call themselves humanists or whatever, but, but standing up to surround uh, these women, to support them, um, to cover up the, the, the voices of oppression, the, the fundamentalist voices that would squash these kinds of human rights that the women were advocating for. And for me, that became an image of a new sort of engagement that progressives could advocate for in terms of their own activism, that we wouldn't um, so much try to advocate for um, the silencing of religious voices in terms of global affairs or um, national affairs, but that we would join the debate in a more ardent way and in a more vocal way. Um, and so that's some of what we're working towards at Faith and Public Life, uh, which is an organization that was created after the 2004 elections to strengthen voices for justice and the common good around uh, the country, and we provide communications and media strategy to faith leaders, moderate and progressive, both at the state level and nationally, as well as organizing and political strategy. I think a number of you are on our daily Faith and Politics newsreel uh, that goes out at lunchtime. Raise your hand if you're on that so I can just promote it. See how many people are on it? You ought to join it. Um, but that, that newsreel, the reason it was set up, and we have people on the Hill and people who work in media and activists on it, a uh, good number of journalists, but it, it, um, it's part of the daily news diet. You know, I'm learning all these Washington, D.C. words, you know, your daily diet of news you've got to take in so that you can be in conversation with the 24-hour news cycle. And um, I know it, it helps a number of you do that. But um, one of the groups we engage with um, this year is a group called We Believe Ohio. How many of you have heard of We Believe Ohio? They were on Nightline on the eve of elections. And um, we've learned a lot from them, they from us, um, in developing a relationship. What really struck me um, about them is um, the way that they decided to engage faith in Ohio, which you had a conservative group called the Patriot Pastors um, and Ron Parsley. Um, and in, in previous efforts, a lot of times the type of engagement by, by clergy or by progressive activists had been sort of a fight the right approach, um, which I'm not knocking, that's one approach. Um, and there had been an effort to, um, on a number of clergy in Columbus, to bring suit. Um, against Patriot Pastors and have the IRS investigate um, Patriot Pastors. And so that was one approach to, to the problem of the Christian right controlling the public debate in the state of Ohio. 
the We Believe approach was a bit different. They put together a coalition of hundreds of clergy and our faith and decided to proactively engage Parsley um, on every maneuver that he made and, and, and to engage progressive issues in a much more vocal way in, in the public square. Um, and so when Parsley would come out with things like, I want to win Ohio for Christ, their response wasn't, you know, be quiet, shut up, sit down. Their response was, um, how about we um, improve the state of Ohio for all people of faith? Um, and, and they were able to get 200 media hits and thousands of news stories. And what we hear, you know, talking to people in the legislature and around the state is that the climate in the state has really shifted by having this proactive, um, positive voice of faith for justice and the common good that respects pluralism um, and that speaks in a pluralistic way, but also is, is um, interested in speaking very particularly to issues of faith and not sort of sanitizing that for the public square. Um, get, that being said, you know, I think there is a transition happening in this country with that and that that is a healthy way to um, engage the debate. There are also you know, many issues, complex issues, that I think are going to emerge in 2008. It's certainly going to be very interesting. Um, I mean, we have a number of candidates on the Democratic side who are actually more um, effective at engaging faith, I think, than on the Republican side. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, we've already seen some of these complexities um, emerging. For example, the Edwards campaign as he tried to deal with his bloggers who had made some anti-Catholic statements. Um, when we see, you know, in Obama's campaign, his um, relationship to his minister and, and people trying to run smear campaigns on him. Um, so I think we're going to have a very dynamic year in terms of religion and, and public life. Um, you know, lastly, I think um, the only thing I guess I would disagree agree with EJ on, which I hate to disagree with EJ on anything because he's one of my heroes, but I, he, um, you know, I think this idea that the era of the religious right is over, I think, you know, it could be over if we continue to organize and to head in this direction and we can continue to, um, to elevate the progressive faith voice. Um, but at the same time, we've often predicted that they are the religious right is over and it only reemerges to see a new day. And I saw that, you know, as I was working at the UN, uh, looking at the Christian right going global and wrote this book. I'll do a quick book plug um, that came out this fall. But um, the Christian right was expanding its influence around the globe at the time I was there and forming coalitions with Mormons, um, Catholics, uh, uh, white evangelicals, and Muslims around the world. They actually held global conferences in Qatar. Um, a global conference in Mexico. Um, so that, you know, in many ways, I think they're expanding into new arenas and, and become, continuing to be influential. Um, but I think one of the most powerful tools we have now at our disposal is really to engage differently in this debate and to make sure that we are able to directly counter with a voice of faith um, the sort of propositions that the religious right has continued to put forward. Uh, thank you, Jennifer Butler. And finally, we wanted to turn to the question of the relationship between the demands and responsibilities of global citizenship and the demands and responsibilities of citizenship here at home. And we thought the perfect person to turn to was Professor Emily Towns, who is the first Andrew Mellon Professor of African American Religion and Theology here at the Yale Divinity School. Uh, you're an ethicist, you're a founding member of the Initiative on Religion and Politics at Yale. Uh, your goal is to bring a progressive voice to pressing social issues, and next year you will be the first African woman to assume the presidency of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, the question I think is, 
uh, what role can uh, the academy uh, writ large, namely uh, universities, schools, the educational community, uh, play in educating uh, people about citizenship in the U.S. in ways that make us more attuned to the demands of global citizenship? I'm going to call four names. Allison Krauss, Jeffrey Glenn Miller, Sandra Lee Schuer, William Knox Schroeder, four dead in Ohio. Today is the 37th anniversary of what, for me, is the Kent State Massacre. The students were killed protesting the U.S. invasion of Cambodia that President Nixon launched on the 25th of April of that year. Hundreds of universities, colleges, high schools, and middle schools closed throughout the U.S. due uh, to what some estimate uh, an 8 million member student strike in protest of the students' deaths. Although nine of the National uh, Guardmen were indicted, District Judge Frank Battisti dismissed the charges on the basis that the prosecution's case was too weak to warrant a trial. Three days ago, Alan Kaforna, one of the nine injured protesters, demanded that the trial be reopened, claiming that he found an audio tape in a Yale University government archive, clearly recording an order to fire. It said, right here, get set, point, fire, just before the 13-second volley of shots. Now, there are a plethora of questions surrounding the tape and what will eventually come of it. But I think it is important to mark this day today and to recognize the possibility of a Yale tie to a case that is still painful for far too many folks in my generation. I was just finishing my first year of high school that year in Durham, North Carolina. It was an enormously difficult year because it was the first year of court-ordered school desegregation. And although Durham liked to think of itself as a progressive spot in the state in that era, White flight took over as parents refused to send their children, my classmates, to schools that would not have a white majority population. The Klan and the Black Panthers and the Communists were all active in my high school trying to recruit students and radicalize us. And yes, I am a product of that ferment. So when I saw the replay of four white students gunned down at Kent State that night on the evening news, I became aware that there are a variety of ways to carry out lynchings that do not necessarily involve black folks. And it was the first time I truly began to see the linkages between what we do here at home and global realities. There were young black men in my neighborhood who went to Vietnam and Cambodia and came home in coffins. And we did not demonize them or their service in my neighborhood. We marked their deaths as service to our country. But we did begin to ask the question, why? Four dead in Ohio was more than a refrain in a mournful protest dirge for me. Because I not only saw, but I felt the deep connections between what was happening in my neighborhood and a distant war that came home to me every day. And it was in that little, predominantly black, trans-class neighborhood of tobacco factory workers, nurses, policemen, 
grade school teachers, secretaries, college professors, day laborers, insurance executives, lawyers, civil rights workers, doctors, and even a house of ill repute, that I learned that hardly anything that happens in the neighborhood did not have some connection to somewhere else in the world. Today, I find my, often find myself in the role of an, as an inquisitor and as a member of the academy. In this vein, I know that it is increasingly imperative that we engage religion and spirituality in the public realm, both in the U.S. and in international contexts. In an increasingly polarized world and a larger academic environment that can often be hostile to things religious, we cannot, as a body of scholars, absent ourselves from the public conversations that are going on despite us all about religion. Many of us who think about religion as our professional vocation shudder at the simplistic and cartoonish characterizations we see and hear about religious worlds as we, that we know to be complex and nuanced. Providing ongoing resources and support for those among us who comment on religious events of our day in the public sphere strengthens not only the public understanding of religions, but it makes us better informed global citizens who refuse to accept shake-and-bake synopses of religion and faith out of a soundbite box that can then become public policy and the grist of our international relationships. With these things in mind, I believe the Academy must work with some of the benchmarks we have as global citizens. There, can be, there have been many appeals to Martin Luther King Jr. in this regard and his notion of the beloved community that he saw stretching far beyond the borders of the US. And while I do find King very helpful in this regard, I have a constant and unfolding dismay at the way he has been reduced to a dream and a mountaintop. So of late, I've turned to the late um, Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. Jordan focused on the preamble to the Constitution, we the people and its call to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. You see, Jordan believed in a robust democracy, which means an informed citizenship about the events of the day, that takes, and that takes hard work on our part, and the Academy can help here by providing some of the resources folk need to make informed decisions, and more importantly, ask informed questions about what is going on in our names. In fact, there are times when I think an uninformed question might not be a bad idea as well. For instance, can we truly have a democracy if we're going about the business of empire building um, globally? We don't like to talk about this nasty habit we've formed since the late 1800s, but Reinhold Niebuhr pointed out in 1960 that presidents from Wilson in 1919 forward want to make the world safe for democracy, while at the same time, in quoting Niebuhr here, frantically avoiding recognition of the imperialism we in fact exercise. Close quote. As academics and citizens of one of the most powerful countries in the world, I believe we must make it a vocational mandate that we help folks understand the responsibilities that come with this kind of power. There is still much for us to heed from William Graham Sumner's 1898 warning, warning that the great foe of democracy now is, the is, is, is in the future of plutocracy. 
The fascination with wealth as the principal basis of power is something I think all of us in the academy can talk about. Be it scholars of sacred texts noting the ways in which empire and inv invasion are troubling parts of our religious traditions. Scholars of history helping us see the arc of how we are people grounded in time. And unfortunately, we have often been here before, but our penchant for historical amnesia in the US keeps us from recognizing that we have engaged already in deadly dances that annihilate, as well as holy dances that have brought in freedom and justice. Scholars of theology and ethics who tease through not only atonement, creation, imago Dei, but also class, gender, militarism, race, and on and on as theological and moral concepts and realities. Christian educators and preachers and pastoral care folks who help us understand that the interplay of faith and politics has always been a challenge for those of us in the Christian tradition. As all of us in the academy come to realize that theories with no grounding and being grounded with no theory is bad scholarship and comes close to making us worthless while tackling the tough demands of citizenship in a democracy, and certainly impossible to challenge the slippery slope of thinking patriotism is blind obedience, which is synonymous with citizenship, we move far away from Barbara Jordan's understanding that what the people want is very simple. They want an America as good as its promise, and a promise that can be carried beyond our borders if we are wise. Tin soldiers and Nixon coming. We're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming. Four dead in Ohio. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Towns. Uh, I'm wondering if I can ask the panel about two obvious cases. Uh, you speak about his historical amnesia in Rwanda in, in, uh, in this country. What about uh, the Rwanda situation? Uh, two years ago, the Secretary of State called what's going on in Darfur a genocide. It continues. Uh, what is our role as global citizens with regard to that? Secondly, uh, we speak of Vietnam. Uh, we're in the middle of a war in Iraq in which uh, thousands are being killed on all sides. And nevertheless, it's not yet uh, a popular movement. It's a political issue, as we see every day in the papers, but it's not one that has captured uh, the imagination of the American people in the same way. Uh, what would the panel say about these two cases? And I I'd start with you, Professor Town. I thought you would. <laughs> um, I think in both cases, what, what we see um, um, is often what I fear is what we want to see as citizens from the US. Um, it is hard, and some of it we're being prevented from seeing. The one thing that was so powerful for me when I was um, a teenager growing up was bringing home the horror of war by watching the soldiers come home in coffins and body bags. And we don't see that now. We don't see the cost of war in concrete ways. And so we don't have um, opportunity to link to what it means unless those folks who are dying um, and who are now casualties that are beyond the dying, but the, mil the hundreds of thousands, I think, who are um, coming back with all manner of physical and emotional wounds that will take, I think, um, I think it was EJ said yesterday, at least two generations. I think it may take longer um, to, for us to heal with because we're in denial. 
we don't want to know the horrors of the things we do and the kinds of costs that come with that. And that, for me, is the great dilemma um, in doing that. And I, and I think of that particularly about Iraq. When we are kept from understanding the enormous costs some of our citizens are bearing and the exponentially more costs the Iraqi citizens are bearing for a war um, that um, at best was ill-conceived. Um, is um, the way, it's not so much amnesia, is that you can't remember what you never knew. And that is an even more deadly place to get. Um, in the case of Rwanda, I think I'm gonna seed that one because um, I'm still um, trying to really understand what I think about Rwanda. So I don't want to start spouting off stuff. No, I'm actually more interested in Darfur. That's happening now. Okay. Darfur? I thought you said Rwanda. I'm sorry. You did. Okay. But I'm talking about historical amnesia about Rwanda okay. at a time when we ought to be doing something about Darfur. Um, The one thing that has always struck me about how we in the U.S. approach the African continent is that too often we approach it as a country without really appreciating the um, deep and long histories of what it means to create countries by somebody else's design rather than by tribal groupings and then wonder why things, people don't get along in what I think are, um, at best, gerrymandered um, countries, uh, geographically um, put together. And so for me, at least when I think of something like Dufour, what comes to mind immediately is this was set in motion decades ago with bad partitioning of who should belong to whom based on economic gains for folks who are outside the continent, not what was happening for folks inside the continent. And so um, when you have the Sudan being created the way it was um, put together and, and then wondering then why aren't these folks not getting along, they had the good sense not to be near each other oftentimes because they knew that the, those fissures were there. And so we have melded folk together who traditionally, in some cases, not in all, in some cases who, um, had centuries old before the partitionings, uh, conflicts with each other. And I see Heidi trying to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm, I'm interested in that. I agree with you on that. Um, I, I look at the Iraq and Darfur examples um, from, from the same angle, but from another angle too, Emily. And that is um, thinking about the world outside these borders. Um, the, the two examples, the United States invasion and occupation of Iraq and its uh, refusal, effective refusal to do anything about starving millions um, and persecuted millions in Darfur um, are um, the, two the two opposite examples that most underline what the world views as American hypocrisy. Um, and um, the lofty goals um, that we set ourselves or that we say publicly um, about Iraq um, and um, follow through because of self-interest and imperial interests. Um, and Darfur doesn't matter 
um, because there aren't, there aren't strategic interests there or not sufficient strategic interests. And it's very, very much the case that um, those two counter examples um, are what often the world holds up as look at American hypocrisy. Um, and, um, you know, here, here's a clear case where intervention might do something in Darfur. Um, and um, a clear place where intervention is not doing anything good in Iraq. Uh, so I think, I think it's, um, uh, they're very, it's lays bare in the minds of many um, the self-interest of um, American foreign policy. Ambassador Lamy. Oh, I, I want to mention just briefly the, the responsibility of the Academy in seeing the world in a more realistic fashion um, and then how the government, how our government can maybe improve its uh, capacity to address these issues. Last fall, the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University issued a uh, fairly comprehensive report on the uh, threats to American security that they foresaw, and they had consulted uh, dozens of scores of scholars of all, all stripe. The striking thing about their report was that it bore no real attention at all to religion. Uh, this is just, I think, emblematic of the situation in the academy that the discussion of international relations and political science still does not uh, adequately deal with the reality, the reality of religion, not whether we like it or not, but its effect upon populations and upon opinion and upon divisions and upon hatreds and all that sort of thing. That's one thing, the, the role of the academy in beginning to appreciate. I think about um, Madeleine Albright's comment that she had never thought about faith and, and public policy before until she was asked to speak on it. Or that it never occurred to a Secretary of State that there was a role. But that's, that's one thing about her. But the fact is that as she taught international relations, uh, religion did not signify. It did not signify in the realist, realist school and so forth. The other is I think it's really important for citizenry to want to see the capacity of the American government to address the issues of uh, the world more intelligently uh, we have so skimped on the State Department budget and we've so tortured the CIA that so many of the brightest and best are not drawn to these things and we've so concentrated on the hard power of military and, and yet it, what would happen if we tried to expand the range of the State Department or whatever across lines of bright intelligent people from educated in Yale and so forth, uh, recruited like the CIA first started recruiting in the 50s when I was graduating from college. Uh, I'm not trying to draw a strict parallel there, but there was an aggressive attempt to get people who were qualified and who simply had ability to deal with the realities of the Cold War. Well, we've got a different kind of situation that includes Darfur and all kinds of things of, for which our government simply uh, for whatever reason, it's too um, hamstrung to be able to address. And I know this is thinking pie in the sky, but really, uh, we, we need to counter the enormity of the military 
with something at least uh, functionally capable on the part of diplomacy and nation building and international relations. Ambassador Joseph and Jennifer Butler. Well, I think uh, we ought to be outraged in the academy and in the faith communities about the diminished voice of those two institutions. And when I think about the King legacy of Professor Townsend, I lament the fact that the focus is primarily on what he had to say about love and the enemy, and rarely about his prophetic anger mm -hmm. uh, about what he saw around him and his call for us to be engaged. Mm -hmm. Which, which lead me to the second uh, point, and that is our diminished voice about the obligations of citizenship. Uh, in the academy, uh, we need to assertively affirm the connection between diversity, civic engagement, and cognitive development. And we, we have producing a generation of students in which very few care about uh, what's happening in Sudan. And uh, I think we have a, a responsibility to, to promote civic engagement. At, at Duke, we are launching a new initiative called uh, Duke Engage, in which we are encouraging all students, all undergraduate students, to participate in some way, either in a summer project or a semester project, that immerses them in a culture and community that's different. Mm -hmm. And we're putting our, 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 uh, our pocketbook where our affirmations are by saying that we will pay the expenses and provide a subsidy for student engagement anywhere in the world. Now, that's the kind of emphasis that tends to be missing. We need to find ways to get students involved. We need to find ways to get the people involved. And instead of romanticizing some elements of reconciliation without understanding the other elements of the continuum, and instead of focusing to some degree on King's prophetic anger, we focus on his notion of love and the enemy. Jennifer Butler. Yeah, I think it's um, interesting in, in looking at the issues of Iraq and Darfur. I mean, they're both very, of course, overwhelming and discouraging because we haven't had made the kind of movement on them that we would like. But I was just reflecting on my own experience working on these issues within faith communities and broader coalitions. Um, in the lead up to the Iraq, Iraq war, for example, um, there were conversations being held between Security Council members and faith leaders in the Quaker House. Um, there were um, for example, um, on the, the Darfur issue, World Vision took the lead in a coalition of global NGOs that actually sat down with Security Council members and presented some of the first evidence to the Security Council of what was actually happening on the ground in Darfur to ratchet up that conversation. And I watched as um, the Sudanese government tried to get into that meeting, came in and, and was run off as well and, and had a fight with you know, the British ambassador in the hallway. So in many ways, um, religious organizations and global civil society have been able to bring these issues to the forefront and bring to light a lot of things that have been happening um, that otherwise wouldn't have been brought to light. Um, some of the first um, articles about in the lead up to the Iraq war about 
the potential humanitarian catastrophe that could result um, as, um, from the invasion. Uh, those articles were um, leaked to journalists by um, a consultant that was working for a coalition of faith groups at the United Nations. And so um, I think very much behind the scenes, it's interesting to see the kind of diplomacy and openings that, that um, people of faith and other uh, members of civil society, other uh, NGOs can create other opportunities. Um, and the coalition um, to end genocide in Darfur too has been one of the broadest, I think, that we have seen um, in recent years with bringing in moderate evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, progressives, um, a wide range of players. Um, that being said, of course, you know, we're, we still haven't brought that to an end despite all of that mobilization. So I'm, I, you know, I'm realistic about that. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I don't think the issues will be kept alive without that kind of forward momentum and there's still potential there that we'll be able to um, bring an end to that conflict because of that. Thank you. Finally, Professor Paul Lakeland. Oh, I got farther, did I? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, uh, just, um, just to follow up on Ambassador Joseph there, the, the notion of education for citizenship um, is a, it's a fine idea that has to have built into it the sense that citizenship of a certain kind dissolves, that citizenship has to expand beyond the boundaries of at least what the nation state traditionally and I guess political institutions imagine to be citizenship. Um, certainly uh, foreign travel and foreign engagement in, in the experience of other parts of the world is a, a useful way of promoting that, but it, it, it itself can be done sometimes in the wrong kind of way. Uh, as I listen here to the whole uh, conversation, I, I, I have found myself imagining what the prophet Amos would say if he came to us today. And, um, you know, the prophet Amos says, uh, I hate, I despise your feasts. Um, I have contempt for your worship assemblies, but let justice flow like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And I have a feeling he might come and say, I hate, I despise your democracy, but let justice flow like waters and righteousness like an ever-growing stream. Just as there is an empty form of religion which can only uh, acquire renewed validation through the commitment to justice, so there's an empty form of democracy which is not valid unless it is cashed in in commitment to justice. Well, obviously, we, we could continue uh, all morning, but um, as a lawyer, the one thing you know is when the judge says the time has expired, you must stop. So uh, I would say this. Uh, there's nothing we can do about uh, globalization, the process. It is, it is happening, whether we like it or not. However, we do have a capacity to further a process of humane globalization. Furthering a process of humane globalization involves invoking uh, global values which are captured in two ideas. One is faith and the other is law. And uh, uh, I'm very grateful to have had the chance to be here to have this discussion with six such extraordinary people. Thank you very much. This panel discussion on faith and citizenship in a global context was recorded May 4th. 2007 at Yale Divinity School. For more information, log on to www.yale.edu/divinity.